Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Sabine Hasenfelder will join us to discuss existential physics. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, many of life's biggest questions may seem out of reach for modern science, but can physics give some of the answers? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Sabine Hasenfelder. Dr. Hasenfelder is a research fellow at the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced Studies in Germany. She's published more than 80 research articles about the foundations of physics, including quantum gravity and physics beyond the standard model. She's written about physics for a broad audience for over 15 years and is the creator of the popular YouTube channel Science Without Gobbledygook. Her writing has been published in numerous outlets, including New Scientist, Scientific American, New York Times, and her first book, Lost in Math, How Beauty Leads Physics Astray. Her new release, Existential Physics, A Scientist's Guide to Life's Biggest Questions, explores some of the biggest mysteries out there for a general audience. Dr. Hasenfelder, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Hello, good to talk to you. Well, there's certainly a fantastic book you've put together here where you really tackle the biggest questions that are out there. I'm curious why you decided to put this book together. I put this book together because I think a lot of people have a bad start with physics in school. They get to think it's just about how batteries work, planetary orbits, nuclear decay, and that kind of thing. But I think physics is our best tool to find answers to the big questions, like why do we only get older and not younger? Are there other universes? Will we ever know everything? Do particles think? How did the universe begin? So all the good questions that are in my book. I think anyone who looks out of the world will, first of all, say, how did any of this come to be and where did all this come from? Yeah, so when you're asking about the beginning of the universe, I think the answer is, the honest scientific answer is, we don't know. We can look back into the past to some extent, and Webb Space Telescope, the new one, is collecting data as we speak, and we're learning something new about how galaxies formed in the early universe, but we can only extrapolate back into the beginning of the universe using mathematics. And from this, we conclude that the universe started with a Big Bang. But what the Big Bang really means, if we look at the mathematics, is that our equations break down. So probably this isn't really what happened. And then what physicists do is that they were probably the Big Bang wasn't really uh, what actually went on. And they invent some other stories that there was maybe a big bounce. So there was an earlier universe which collapsed and now it's expanding again and they could continue to repeat so we would have a cyclic universe or we could have come out of a black hole or it could have been some kind of network or collision of higher dimensional brains or strings or what have you. So we have all those different stories about how the universe could have begun and I think that they're basically modern tales of creation wrapped in the language of mathematics. 
Is this a potential boundary for what physics can tell us? Can we ever really know why there is a universe or why there's even physical laws to begin with? I think the answer to this is no. There's just limits to how much we can find out with science. And one of the things that you can't find out with science is why anything, right? There's, there's nothing in our scientific method that requires there to be anything to begin with. And another thing that science can't explain is uh, why science works to begin with. We know it works, but we can't use the scientific method to show why the scientific method works. It doesn't even make logical sense. Even this notion of whether or not everything exists about block universe, what do we know about time generally? Yeah, that's an interesting question because it's one of those big questions where maybe surprisingly we have actually learned something in the past century. So for all we currently know, the past still exists. And that's one of the consequences of Einstein's theories of space and time. It's also called the block universe. So the universe doesn't come into being. It just sits there like a block already in place. And according to Einstein, this comes about because it's impossible that everyone agrees on which moment is now. So odd as it sounds, every moment could be now for someone. So your past could be somebody else's present. And then why should somebody else's present be any less real than yours? So this is why we think the past still exists and it exists the same way as the present. When it comes to the future, it's a little bit more difficult because of quantum mechanics. Is this a consequence of limitations of the speed of light? Yeah, so, so the speed of light limitation is the reason why it becomes very difficult to construct this moment of now. So if, let's just use a very simple example. Do the clouds exist now? Well, I, I guess you would say, yes, uh, of course they do. I can see them. But actually what you see is how the clouds looked like a fraction of a second in the past because the speed of light is finite. That sounds like it's just a statement about what you can observe. But it turns out if you take this seriously and you build fully consistent mathematical theory around it, which is what Einstein did, then it just becomes impossible to give any specific definition to the moment of now that does not depend on where you are and how you move. So every different observer, you and me, strictly speaking at least, and uh, you know, if they're intelligent being on other planets, they all have a different notion of now. It's just that in, in everyday life, we normally don't notice it because our relative velocities are so, so small compared to the speed of light. Brings a broader question about the one-way arrow of time and why we're always moving forward and no one's getting any younger. Yeah, that's another one of those uh, big questions. And again, the interesting thing is that we partly have an answer to the question. So the part of the question that we know how to answer is why does time seem to have a direction? And that's loosely speaking because it's very easy to mess things up. It's very easy to break things, but it's very difficult to repair them. So as the universe gets older, things break 
but they don't unbreak. And the way that we describe this in terms of mathematics is that we say entropy increases. So it, everything becomes more and more disorderly, and that's why the past looks different than the future. But this brings up the question, if you look back into the early phase of the universe, then it must have been very, very orderly. The entropy must have been very small. And why is that? We know it's the case, but we have no idea why. If you look back in time, yes, the entropy must have been smaller. And so things must have been more orderly. Another question you bring up in the book is, do copies of us exist? Yeah, so um, this is an idea which has come up in the context of the multiverse. So this is the idea that our universe isn't the only one, but there are other ones, possibly infinitely many of them. And there are different versions of those multiverses. Some show up in quantum mechanics. And uh, in others, you have basically the same kind of matter as in our universe, but in slightly different arrangements. And those differences might really be very, very small. So you could have a universe in which there is a copy of you that is almost exactly identical, except at one particular moment, it makes a different decision. And then after this, the history diverges from ours. And so are those other copies of you, are they real? Do they exist? Well, I would say it's not a question that science can answer. Neither can it tell you that they do exist, nor can it say that they don't exist. I call this kind of question ascientific. Science really can't answer it. So you're free to believe it, basically. There's nothing in science that speaks against it, but there's also nothing that speaks for it. This is one of those questions which has been brought up because of the interpretations for quantum mechanics. No one really has a good handle on what those equations actually mean. Yes, so that's why uh, one of those versions of the multiverse comes about. It's also called the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And as the name says, it's an interpretation of the mathematics. So in quantum mechanics, we have part of the evolution of, uh, of a system, uh, maybe some kind of particles, that is determined by the initial state. So we can exactly tell what happens. But then if you make a measurement, it makes an indeterministic jump. And so in what's normally called the standard interpretation, also known as the Copenhagen interpretation, which is the one that's typically taught to students, the moment you make this measurement, you just get an indeterministic change in the system. So it jumps to a particular outcome, basically. Now, in the many worlds interpretation, you say, well, all those outcomes actually happen, but they happen in different universes. It just happens to be the case that we are only in one of those universes and we can't observe the others. Now, the problem with this is that if you can't observe the other universes, you don't know if they actually exist. So uh, you could say that they exist in a non-scientific way. If you want to believe in them, you can do this. But for what our observations are concerned, we can't really tell one way or the other. The field of quantum mechanics has put a little spin on our understanding of nature of the universe from being fundamentally deterministic to fundamentally indeterministic. And both of those seem incompatible with free will. Does physics really say that we have no free will? Well, that depends on what you mean by free will, really. Um, so the problem with talking about free will is that no two people mean the same thing. They all have some idea for what it means, but what do we mean by free to begin with? Free from what? Free 
to do what? What is this will? Who is willing it? And if someone wills it, then how is it free? Has consciousness something to do with it? So this is a, is a deep rabbit hole. So the way that I like to address this problem is that I just talk about what we know about the laws of nature. And as you just said, they're basically deterministic up to this occasional random event that comes from quantum mechanics. And then the question is, well, given that you now know this, and this is how the particles in your brain interact and how they evolve in time, would you say that we have free will? And I would say, well, the answer is no. And let's just forget about this thing that we came to call free will. It doesn't really make any sense. But other people have put forward different definitions of free will, which are compatible with that. Looking at all these questions that you've posed in the book, are there any that have struck you as where physics maybe is at the crux of making some breakthroughs? Well, I, I don't know if, if we're on the crux of making a breakthrough on this one, uh, but one that, that certainly blown my mind is that we can't rule out that the universe as a whole might be able to think. And I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. So it's not that I'm saying the universe can think. We don't have any evidence for it, but we also can't rule it out. So it's a possibility. And I'm not sure what it would mean. If the universe thinks, how do I make sense of this? It's hard to see how consciousness emerges. Do you think that it might be something fundamental to the universe? Consciousness arises from any number of physical systems? So I've tried to avoid talking about consciousness in my book to the extent possible because I think it's not really a question for physics. We can only talk about some of the preconditions, but at least for the moment, I think there is no reason for any extra. It seems to me that consciousness is something that becomes possible in systems that have a lot of interactions that can exchange a lot of information in a non-trivial way, you could say. And there, there are qu quite a few physicists who are trying to quantify this, like exactly what does it take for a system to become conscious. I'm not particularly convinced by any of those approaches that people are presently pursuing, but I think sooner or later it'll probably become possible. And I'm not very convinced by those approaches who think that we need consciousness as a new fundamental ingredient to the universe. I, I see no need for this. How do you suggest people think about the way physics describes our world, what it tells us about our existence? Does it provide any insights in terms of how one lives their life, knowing that there are these physical laws that govern existence? Well, when, when, you're, when you're asking about the question of free will in particular, I have drawn my own conclusions from this, which I think it's made me more aware of how much we are really determined by what information we take in. And then this machine, which is our brain, works on it. And so it's made me very careful about selecting what kind of information I even let into my brain, because I realized that once it's in, I can't get it out. There's no such thing as free will. That old garbage in, garbage out, make sure you can put the good stuff in. <laughs> So you talked about how the universe began, where it is. How will the universe end? 
Yeah, it's another one of those questions where um, I think the scientifically honest answer is we don't know and we'll probably never know. And in this case, the reason is that what people do when they try to make a prediction about how the universe ends is that they take the mathematics that we currently use and they just run it into the far, far future. And we're talking hundreds of billions of years, maybe a thousand And the way that it currently looks, if you just naively do this, is that the expansion of the universe will become faster and faster, and galaxies will become ever more distant to each other, stars will burn out eventually, everything will collapse into black holes, and then those black holes evaporate, and that's pretty much it. So not much going on at the end of the universe. But the problem with this extrapolation is if there are any physical processes that are very rare, so rare that we haven't seen them so far, they might become really, really important in the far future. And, you know, if you're talking about trillions of years, then we have only just seen a really, really small stretch of this. So it's conceivably possible that there might be those rare interactions that would completely change the picture and we'll never be able to rule it out. I'm curious if you have any final words regarding your book and what the frontiers are for physics. So I spent a lot of time debunking science news. Um, So if there's a headline saying that quantum internet will allow us to send information faster than light, and I have to explain that no, it won't, or we have made contact to parallel universes, I'm the one who has to say, no, we haven't. I'm doing all this debunking, and I think that's really uh, important, but it's also kind of depressing. So it, it, it gives people the impression that physics only tells us what is not possible. But I think this is a very one-sided picture. Physics also opens our minds to what is possible. And in many cases, it's physics that lets us imagine these possibilities in the first place. And this is something that I wanted to bring out with my book. We were just talking with Dr. Sabina Hasenfelder. She is the author of the new book, Existential Physics, A Scientist's Guide to the Life's Biggest Questions. Dr. Hasenfelder, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.